A street smart kid from rural Missouri started his career working for a legendary and bigger-than-life Kansas City banker. After helping that bank grow at St. Louis region, he decided it was time to move out on his own by buying into a small rural bank that would become a billion-dollar empire in about nine years that went public. Unfortunately, his story included a federal prison. How did his life start crashing downward? I read The Great Choice in just one sitting. The author is Sean Hayes. My guest coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. So how does a banker with a small personal fortune wind up in the prison that once housed John Gotti and was known as the prison that replaced Alcatraz? My guest is Sean Hayes. He's the author of The Great Choice. Uh, This is a book about first business lessons as a teen, uh, working in the rank and file after college, not having the right name for promotions, buying a business, learning crazy lessons along the way, and knowing how to build a team, going public, selling the business, and then great choices, disappointment, and hitting rock bottom. So here's my interview with Sean Hayes, the author of The Great Choice. Sean, you do not mention the name Harvey Silvergate in your introduction, but you mention him with a quote. So Harvey Silvergate in his book states, the average professional commits three felonies a day. Again, I've not read that book. You refer to him. Now I'm curious. I'm curious. I don't want to be funny about this. I'm curious. On average, I wonder what those felonies are. Do do you have any idea what those felonies are? He says, on average, we commit three a day. I can tell you one that's committed by at least 90% of commercial loan borrowers at banks, and that's bank fraud. Bank fraud is so easy to commit. The issue was we seldom, I mean, seldom in tens of thousands of business loans ever turn anybody in for one reason. If I turn them over to the feds, I didn't get my money back. And I viewed the money as mine, not literally, but figuratively because I was a big shareholder. And I always thought if I put so-and-so in jail, I'm going to lose 800,000. But if I limp through and never do business with him again, maybe I'll only lose 200 or nothing. So that's a simple one. And, uh, but no, the, you, you know, fraud is misrepresentation and, and it can be taken. Um, when you spend three years in the federal system, there was a young man who they were angry at, but his actual crime was lying on an apartment application about his income. Okay. That was how, you know, they, they wanted other stuff they couldn't get there. So at the end of the day, because the apartment building was federally financed, FHA, that's a federal loan. That's a federal document. Bingo. So there's there's so many ways. I have to tell you this. So the last time I talked to a very prominent criminal lawyer that if you're in St. Louis, you everyone knows. He said, let me tell you a crime we just found out about. And I've never smoked pot in my life. In fact, I never saw it. Till I went to prison. If you smoke pot in your home and you have a gun in a safe anywhere in that home, that's a federal offense because you're taking illegal drug in your possession of a firearm. So there's there's two right there. Obviously, one of them in business, but 
the last thing I'll answer that with, when the Constitution was written, there were three federal crimes, murder, counterfeiting, and treason. Today, there's like 40,000. So there's your answer. Interesting. I read your book in one setting, and I think because of the emotional, you know, I know the state of Missouri, I understand United Missouri Bank, uh, St. Louis. So there's a tie. I just feel like I think I kind of know this guy, even though I never had met you. So I read the book in one sitting, but I had to go back to the chapter where things start unraveling. Can you tell me again what the crime was? Now, there's a sentence where you said, hey, I was benefiting out of some of these loans. So there's a conflict of interest. So I violated banking rules. But could you tell me exactly the crime that you committed? Well, truthfully, Mark, when I pled guilty, the U.S. Attorney's Office filled the room with people so I could explain it because they knew I'd done something. And because I couldn't bifurcate my trial with a co-defendant who had a business that I had nothing to do with, that I knew once you marched all those families up that lost their homes, I wasn't going to get out. I explained it. What I did was I, I really committed two crimes. The one crime I committed was because finance had ground to a halt. And this one's an easy one for you. You'll, this one you'll get is a loan opportunity that I was a participant in. The bank approved. I didn't disclose it. Now, because of my ownership position, I couldn't have done it anyway. Now, it wasn't that it was a bad loan. It was a beneficial to me. And that's, an, that's, that's, that's a bank fraud. The second crime, the one that really is complicated, and it's the same thing. And this is a lot of how I justified this to myself. I didn't take any money in anything. I was trying to buy myself time. So I constructed, and, and by the way, being out state Missouri, and you may remember this name, a gentleman named Gary Dickinson. I watched him buy bad assets in banks in the 80s and early 90s. And he, he made himself probably a billionaire when he was killed in a, a terrible automobile accident. So I saw these loans as an opportunity, buying them at 50, 60 cents on the dollar, not lending the money to the cripple borrower, but getting the notes assigned to three borrowers who could carry the interest, reduce the principal with no connection to the underlying real estate. And then they worked out an agreement with the current borrower, how they'd split the profits. That's all legal. The issue was there was one loan at one bank that was tied to me and the borrower, my other co-defendant, and the bank, they were smart enough to say, we're not going to do this deal unless you take this loan. And at the 11th hour, now I benefited from that loan. And therein lies my crimes. And I was guilty, and there's no question about it. And I take full responsibility. I I hope this is not... I hope I'm not uh, asking a, a question that's none of my business, but you bring it up in the book. You have had a couple of serious health scares a couple of times in the book. And I'm thinking, is, is he going to get through this? Oh, wait a minute. He finished the book. So I, I do want to ask real quickly, how is your health uh, these days, Sean? Uh, one, everything's on the table in our interview. So I would answer anything. Thank you for asking. I had cancer twice. The last time I finished chemo in the fall of, um, of 21 or 22, I'm sorry, no, I was 20, 21. My issue came last winter when I got pneumonia. 
because I, what they tell me is I really don't have an immune system. And they told me I had two kinds of ammonia. And I only take the time to tell this because I think it's Shania Twain or one of those famous country singers who just went in for COVID pneumonia. They told me that was one of the two I had. I never heard of it. And quite honestly, I thought there was a fantasy till I read the paper the other day. My point is I, I had three, well, four men who were wonderful to me last winter who all four of them would tell you today, they gave me a one in chance, 10 chance of living. But I believe I have a story that I have to tell to hopefully, and I say this in the book, and I'm so sincere in this, that if I can keep one person from doing something stupid, like what I did, I will have accomplished my goal. But I'm in, I'm in great health and I feel wonderful and thank you. Any business person in St. Louis has heard of uh, the talk show called Donnie Brook. I, I'm just, I would say 90% of every business person knows about Donnie Brook. You brought it up briefly. It's in the book. Your kids, how are things going with your kids? And if it's none of my business, just say, Mark, pass. No, again, it's, it's, it's like I said, everything's on the table. The, the thing is, it's dynamic. Uh, I believe in the end of the, at the end of the day, and I, I have a friend that's going, going through the same thing with only one of two children. And I tell him a couple times a week, Richard, I know in my heart and in my mind, it will work out. I don't know when, and I don't know how. And I will tell you when this all started, my number, and I, I, I number them by age. My number one child was number five. And we were totally disenfranchised because he lived through this and he was angry from prison in the last five years, he's now number one. And the other four move back and forth, but I have, you know, some that truly don't talk to me and they're angry. And I have one that wasn't talking to me in the last actually hundred days or so we've now begun texting. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it pains me, but I brought it up on myself, but I know at the end it'll work out. And there's a chapter in a book about my relationship with my father. And that's what, at the end of the day, I look at is I got there and, uh, and I believe we'll all get there. I want to go back in time to the kid in Thayer, Missouri. I had to look it up, by the way. I didn't, I did not realize it was so far down South on the Arkansas border or near it. I grew up more in North central Missouri Thayer, Missouri, you have a couple of really cool stories. Real quickly, can you mention the fireworks story? I I actually laughed out loud when you were talking about driving back with your fireworks from Arkansas and it rained on the way back. Well, I was a, it was the summer of 1980 and and I'd been in the hay baling business year before and just made a killing because I didn't have a cost of capital. And fuel oil was up. A bailing twine was that, and you just couldn't make money. And after a couple of weeks of really not doing much of anything, Mark, my father looked at me and said, you need a job. Well, I didn't really want a job. And I had played baseball all my life. And Thayer was a town of 2000 next to a town of about 1100. So it was kind of a commercial hub for those small little Southern Missouri towns. And we had a big fireworks display after the ball game every year on the 4th of July. So I knew the fire um, marshal because all volunteers. And I called Mr. Dahl and said, where do you get them? And as I say in the book, I have to tell this part because people don't know this. I dialed 1-501-555-1212 and asked for the number Arnold Fireworks. I turned around and dialed the number. A lady answers. I say, may I speak to the owner? And she told me she owned The long and the short of it was because I didn't do this till after the 1st of June, I had to go get them. We had plenty of trucks. 
little, what I was thinking, I don't know. I go down there, you know, back in those days, you don't check the rain, you know, the weather like you can today. I load all these fireworks up, you know, put them on there, strap them down. And then I get on the highway and it's torrential several times because it is an interstate. You had to find an overpass. So maybe a couple of times I could find an overpass. And then I got home and I pulled them in an open garage and those boxes were, uh, let's put it this way. I was afraid the fireworks were going to come through them. Luckily, they didn't become duds. Good. So now then, and this, you know, the, the, the entrepreneurial part of it was we had the first access on 63, which was limited north of town and you couldn't sell fireworks in the city limits and south they were lined up in arkansas because you can do anything in arkansas in those days so i just set it up and i went to you all would call it a copy machine in my day a mimograph machine made these things i went to grocery stores on saturdays i put two billboards billboards four by eight sheets of plywood that i painted with red paint discount fireworks ahead and i was in business from selling fireworks to becoming a loan bookie or a loan shark. And I thought one story you told, I thought you were going to get beat up because there were some brothers and a dad. How come you didn't get beat up in the story where you'd loan some money out? What it was was the son had made it like I was the one making him bet. And all I was was the lender in due course. And when the father, when the story came out in a very dark uh, at 60 and 63 parking lot of a truck stop and, and there was nothing there to protect me. There was a girl there for a witness, but that wasn't going to help. And all of a sudden the dad looked at the son and said, wait a minute. You, this guy actually kept you from getting hurt because if he had to pay me, there would have been a large man or two from St. Louis come down and collected their money. And it would not have been pretty. And the father well, he was you know, um, a farmer by trade. He wasn't ignorant. And all of a sudden, the tables turned just enough. He obviously wasn't happy with me. And he said, how much money are you actually out? And, you know, he owed me $4,500. But in reality, I was out about, you know, 30 some, 32 or 300. And he literally wrote me a check for that. And we didn't shake hands. We just both got in our cars and it was the happiest 45 minutes home I've ever had in my life. I was, I, I thought I was beaten, whooped and really hurt. But you eventually got out of that business, right? Uh, that was the end of the business right there. I knew at that point I was not going to have my teeth much longer. I appreciated those backstories because I'm thinking, oh, this kid is an entrepreneur. And it reminds me of many entrepreneurs I serve on a daily basis. I, without knowing you, I can tell you, you are a very decisive person once you make a decision. I have a feeling you're the guy who has 10 ideas a day, and then you're going to pick one, and you're constantly self-editing. And I think that was the young man, the young entrepreneur, who ended up becoming what you did later. And we're going to talk about the bank story in a bit. Am I in, am I in the ballpark? with your entrepreneurial spirit. I always say one of my best traits is I can make a decision. So I couldn't, I, I concur completely. And yeah, and literally today I've already had two or three things that have hit me. And um, uh, I, I think in, in today's world, I would have been called ADD, but I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think most entrepreneurs have whatever that is. I, yes. I'm not going to become a physician in a hurry, but um I believe you're right. Agree. And, and then we move on to Kansas City, Missouri. 
United Missouri Bank, and there's a guy called Crosby Kemper. Was he number two uh, in the Kemper family? I I, I know the he was the, the RCK Junior. The roots go back to Commerce Bank, which is publicly traded uh, as well, but it came first, I believe. But you have Crosby Kemper, who would have been your ultimate boss at the time. And there were some fascinating stories about this particular bank president. You want to pick one that is worth sharing? Well, well, there's one that isn't in the book, but well, there's a piece of it. But I, I, I tell you a little more of the story because of where you grew up. You know where Milan is. Yes, I do. Okay, so it's it's the fall of 81, and agriculture is not doing very well. And the president in the Bank of Milan, because in those days it was unit banking, uh, made a ton of just, forget bad, stupid loans, were literally not underwritten. And so the guy who, one of the two men who, one was a vice chairman, one was the executive vice president that I ultimately worked for uh, during my training period, was born on the same day as I am. And we had just an unbelievable relationship. Well, Crosby didn't drive himself. And we always joked he had one bank president that couldn't add two and two, but he was a driven man, meaning he drove Crosby everywhere. But for some reason, he had Doug driving and Crosby had a new Seville. And Doug's driving Crosby from Kansas City to Milan, and you know there's no good way to get there. And he's reading reports. And Crosby was six seven. He's a it was a big man, and Doug was a big man. Played football um, at at Pittsburgh State. And all of a sudden, Crosby's digesting or trying to digest the magnitude of the problem, and he starts kicking the floor of the car. Well, Doug said it wasn't long. The firewall was gone. He was that angry. And this was a man who, in the can, and there's a quote in the book from the Kansas City paper, he could be unbelievably charming or he could just be a terror. And I was fortunate. I never got the downside, but I saw it. As a friend of mine said to me, who was a, the second person hired in my training program, but because he, he was a year older, he graduated in December. He was the first one to start. And after a few years out, he called me one day and said, Sean, you won't believe this. I got a call from Shirley, who was Crosby's secretary, and she said, hold for Mr. Kemper. And he said, when the first words came out of his mouth, it was something expletive idiot. He goes, it went downhill from there. So Crosby just had that presence that he could do that. But on the other hand, to me, he was a kind gentleman, fatherly figure who was respectful, who could charm people. And he was an advantage when he would come to St. Louis and I could bring him to your company and talk. It was change the game because we didn't have that in St. Louis. We were the outsider, the newcomer. And it was very hard for the Kansas City banks in St. Louis and very hard for St. Louis banks in Kansas City. But for Commerce, who sent David Kemper over here when they bought County Tower and it changed their company. No one else had that ability. What I did not realize now behind their backs, behind their backs, Commerce Bank, especially 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, behind their backs, I would say they're the last bank I want to approach because they're so ultra conservative. Well, I did not know that UMB was so conservative. There, You say in the book that they would never make a real estate loan unless it was owner-occupied. And I'm thinking, you're kidding. So they didn't do like apartment community? That, that, that shocked me that I did not realize that. 
And I think it's probably changed since I left because, you know, now the feds are on you for low income housing and things like that. But in my day, if it truly didn't have an owner in, in and in, maybe you could get by with it, but you had to have 51% of that building be occupied by the occupant. So it wasn't like if you built a 50,000 square foot warehouse and you're going to put your business in a $10,000 bay, that was speculative. We wanted you to occupy three bays. But, you know, for the right people and the right in, in repayment, we would do that. But, yeah, we were far more conservative than commerce was. And they were conservative. And by the way, I want to give a little context. We're talking the time period 1982 is, I believe, that your first date that you started uh, at the bank. I counted it. When I finished the book, I counted. How many times did he say this? I want to be a millionaire. I want to be a millionaire. You said that four times in the book. Now, why do I bring that up right now? Well, you were successful during your tenure, at least in Kansas City. Then there's an opportunity to go over to St. Louis, and it's kind of hilarious. I, it may have been it may have been Crosby Kemper said, "How much money do we make over in in St. Louis?" And I think the answer is uh, twenty four. Oh, twenty four thousand, and then someone says, "No, twenty four dollars." So there wasn't much of a footprint. UMB was just not making a difference in St. Louis. So you ended up taking over St. Louis, right? Well, I was, I took over corporate banking in St. Louis at, 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 in, in my mid twenties. And by the way, when I started out, I was a lousy manager of people. That's a lesson that really? we won't ever cover in this today, but well, you're 20, you, you know, I was, this is, this is, but it does tie to a lesson that I believe the book, one of the things I'm trying to get people to realize, one of my faults was I had, the belief at that age of everyone, I lost it now that I think I'm realistic, that they wanted things as bad as I did. And I was managing a bunch of 40 and 50 year old men who were has-beens and whatever they'd done. And it showed up at UMB as a place to land. And so I really wasn't a good manager for them. By the way, I wouldn't have hired any of them in my own world anyway, but I didn't do, I didn't do well at that. But my own drive and and the younger people that are with me, we overcame those obstacles, but it was it was a learning lesson. I just want to interject quickly. The, the reason I'm acting and look surprised is in about five minutes, I'm going to compliment you for something which contradicts a little bit what you just said. So again, that's why I'm a little bit surprised, but you'll find out in, in a couple of minutes. Well, there's an opportunity. I have to digress for, can I digress for one Please, minute, Mark? Go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. But I have to tell this story because I love this man. Charles Drury, Drury Hotels, probably the most individually successful hotel chain in the world. I'm not talking size. I'm talking, I don't think they've ever closed one. So I'm 26 years old. I'm on the top floor of the bank and he comes in and he's angry and he wants to talk to someone. Well, the one who sees him is Sean Hayes because everybody else is all of a sudden not going to talk to him. He came in, couldn't have been more gracious. We talked about Southern Israel. So at the end of the day, he was there because he got turned down for a mortgage on his own house. And I said, Mr. Drury, they don't report my world, but because you've been so gracious come here, I'm going to find out. Well, a couple hours, he's in my office. I just call Kansas City. And I go, and here's what they told me. We're not going to lend you money because you're a developer. That tells you how conservative we were on his own home at 270 in Ladue when he first moved to St. Louis. Now you can go for it. I just now want to give that perspective on what we thought of real estate. You're successful uh, in St. Louis, and then you had the opportunity, you and another partner, to buy into a bank way, way up in northeast Missouri, uh, Cahoka, a Cahoka bank. 
30, maybe 20 million at the time in assets. I don't think it hit 30. That 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 had to be a rush a little bit buying into your first bank, right? Well, I you don't know how hard it was for me to leave cuz loyalty in the in the in, in the president of the bank and then Crosby as a chairman had been so good to me. But I knew in my heart my last name wasn't Kemper in my mind and it wasn't ever going to happen. And ironically, as I tell in the book, the guy, they said in five years, will be president in St. Louis. In five years, Crosby Kemper the third was president in St. Louis. The best move I ever made. So it was sheer pain and fear because I'm 29 and, the only reason, and I had a partner who'd found the bank who was 38, who had a successful history of operating. But I didn't realize that he literally, we, I raised almost all the money and I thought he was going to run it and I would sell like I'd done at UMB. And all of a sudden I figured out he had retired. He saw it as we'll build this to a hundred million dollar bank and we'll just, you know, that was a big deal in those days and we'll just click along and we'll have a good living. And I'm like, I didn't get into this for that. So therein lie the problem. I know it wasn't funny at the time, but you are still living in St. Louis. Cahoka is a hundred plus miles away. I forget how many miles it was 150 miles. 168. Oh, you see, you know that, you know, it down to the 168, you tell the story of driving and, and you can't make this stuff up. You've got $750,000, three quarters of a million dollars in your trunk to deposit to the federal reserve the next day in St. Louis. Well, uh, you know, and I'm, and I, no one would say I'm cheap, but I'm very cost conscious. And we, the first thing is Mike figured out, he goes, we're sitting on a million one in vault cash. And let's take three quarters of a million, send the Fed, and we'll make 60000 Well, you just bought this bank, and immediately you can increase earnings, 5000 a month. That's a big deal in the little bank. So we're in. And he says, call Brinks. And I call them. They wanted $250, and they wanted to come like a week from Thursday. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That didn't service. And I had a Buick. Now, by the way, the movies do not understand $750,000 doesn't fit in a little briefcase. I feel that that Buick was almost dragging the bumper. And I can't believe, Mark. I did it because it was uninsured. It's dark. You know, it's, it's, it's like late October because we just closed like October 17th or 19th. And I'm driving 160 miles. Virtually all only the last 30 miles is even interstate. If I'd had a wreck. I mean, you could just think of anything that go wrong. If I'd have gotten pulled over, I'd probably end up in jail because they thought I would have stolen. Exactly. It. And then and I and then the last thing I'll say on this is I didn't tell anyone this story mainly out of the fact I didn't want to think how stupid and crazy I was until I got to the book. And I said, because obviously the people at the bank knew and my wife knew and some friends knew, but I never told them. My nephew said, you are crazy. And my one living cousin, my mother's side said, and this was a good question. Why didn't you sleep in the car that night? <laughs> what I wasn't thinking is why didn't I pull the car in the garage and sleep? And I didn't even think of that. We lugged all that money into the house and it takes a while to move that much money. But um, but it was all over $250. And that, though, was the basis for the culture that we created at Allegiant, where one time I crawled in the dumpster to take out paper because um, I won't buy Post-its and I won't throw stuff away. And so we I took all that paper out of this bank we bought and they cut it up and, you know, you don't they don't post, but, you know, you got you could use tape. I said, I'm not going to pay. So it was a nice cultural setting. But uh, I can't believe I did it. And somebody be crazy to do it today. You know, Sean, I'm glad you did because it's a great story. I mean, it's, it's, it is a great story. I will say that, oh, by the way, Sean did not go to bed in the bedroom. 
he slept right next to the money. I, again, that, that was a great footnote uh, to that story. From Cahoka, then there's the opportunity to buy a small bank in St. Louis. Now you're in St. Louis. And then within a matter of a few years, you're finally pushing a billion dollars. So you went from one small bank up in rural Missouri to now becoming a major force in the St. Louis area. What an adrenaline rush, but it wasn't by accident, was it? No, but that was the ultimate adrenaline rush. And we literally, and this is unheard of in banking, in business, it's not. We went from uh, from when we bought Michael out, a $30 million bank, to in less than eight years, a billion. We went 30-fold. We ended up growing, growing 80-fold in nine years. And the point was, nothing was a ride like that. It was just unbelievable. And, and, I, and I said this then, and I said, now, it was based on a handful of people. My oldest son and I had a conversation in the mid-2000s when I was at National City, and he said, Dad, how do you feel? You know, you're one of the top 35 people in 36,000 and, you know, $20 million jet with two pilots fix you up and moves you around and does all this stuff. And I said, Stephen, it's like turning an aircraft carrier in the Mississippi. It, you can't do anything. I said at Allegiant, with a handful of men and women, we could change the company. And we did, frequently. I, I wrote down, as I was writing, I always like to try to, when I read history, I'll usually have a little scratch pad trying to trace out the timeline. And I, I did not, I did not write down when you changed the name to Allegiant, which by the way, starts with the letter A. It's a great story of why you picked an A word for your bank. But here's my brief timeline. In 1989, you buy uh, the Cahoga Bank. And then in 1980, you buy North St. Louis Trust Company. So now you're at 50 plus million. By the end of 92, you're, 92 you're up to 68 million. 93, you're at 100 million. 94, 171. 1995, you go public. In 1996, you reached 400 million. And then 1997, you all purchase Reliance Federal Savings. You bring on E&Y, uh, which was a big deal because they helped with some cost savings in 1997. And then it, I think it was in 2020. No, I'm trying to remember the year that you became a billion dollar uh, bank, but it's, it's, well, I think it's beyond a little bit beyond 1997 that you become a billion-dollar bank. The the growth is, again, phenomenal. Here, here's where I want to compliment you. So I, in my day job, I work with a lot of companies that scale quick, scale fast, and I'm a big believer. I have zero science. To, remember, I'm a hick, too. I grew up in Madison, Missouri, so I'm a what I consider a sophisticated hick, but a hick nevertheless. My, my non-science tells me in leadership there's a triangle, and that triangle usually starts with the CEO. And the other two points on the triangle may be the IT guy or the operations guy. It could be the CFO or the CTO or the CFO and the CO. You had that triangle. Uh, you brought on at one point an IT person. At another point, you brought on a CFO. So those are critical. I mean, big deal acquisitions of people because some of the people around you were 
significant in helping this organization to grow. Am I getting this right, Sean? To- totally. And I call people role players. And we br- and by the way, you know, a lot was by design, but really when you saw the problem, then you designed it. But the IT person came and then we grew. And we did things that banks didn't do with technology before. The second thing is, is then once we climbed that mountain, then we said, we have to have somebody to count these beans and do these beans right. And really, I credit our acquisitions with Tom's underwriting. And you and I talked earlier about Joe Pope, who was at Southside. And that's and that's why I got to him, because Tom had such a good relationship through the merger. But that was the right person at the right time. But along the way, a person who doesn't go in the book, but we brought in a chief credit officer in 97. So if you look at that, I would say from from 94 for a while, it was IT and then and then and uh, and CFO. And then when IT was solved, it became CFO and lending because you're in a credit business. Mm. And those were the, the cornerstones of that triangle that gave us the success. And, you know, we never had regulatory issues. And I, I was interviewed by the Post for a long time, an hour and a half on Wednesday. And I said, you know, because he said, tell me something that people don't know. I said, well, people said we took a lot of risk. Over those years, the average bank in our peer group lost one to one and a quarter percent of total loans. We averaged 0.28 over 15 years. We looked at credit differently. Now, did we take risk? Absolutely. But we quantified it. And you have a question in in that I think you were going to ask about getting in the gray. Well, whenever this is how I got myself in the gray. And and I think it's it's a good it's a good point to interject here. I would go to our attorneys, Thompson Coburn, the largest firm in the state at that time, and say, don't ever, Mark, tell me what I can't do. And the assumption was it'd be legal. But tell me how I can do what I want to do. And at that point, I will then determine if it's worth the aggravation. And one of the things in, in, in about 94, the government came up with law, you couldn't lend 100% on real estate. And you were limited to 300% of capital. Now, our capital in the end was, you know, 200 you know, $200 million or, you know, like, like that. But before that, it was nowhere near that. So we couldn't have done what we did. So what we did was we, they said, well, if you do all these things and you show the regulators exactly what you're doing, I went through this in detail with the post, I won't do it for your viewers. But the point is we showed them what we did. And what happened was we made loans that were 180 days or less. Actually, the, the duration was about 93 days. We charged two over prime and two points. That's why we were the always highest yield bank. But in doing that, we lent you 100%. But we proved in, I'll say, 99% of the cases, probably every, but I'll hedge a little. The bank that took us out had 30 to 50% more lend on the same property. But they were following the rules to the letter because it was the acquisition. You couldn't lend 100%. They were, they were doing a refinance. So then they went and got an appraisal. Well, before you had the de- ways of, conf- of, of dad out in the world, we literally took newspapers, looked at what properties sold for in the neighborhood, you couldn't get an appraisal in the speed that we were doing these. And we proved that not only do we not lose a dime, but that we were, you know, we were within line or actually under the market. And the next lender was the one who really took the risk. That's a long, that was the beginning of operating in the gray because we were legally in it, but we were out there, but we had a, we had a system. I, I do want, before we move on, I do want to go back to uh, Allegiant. Again, the the name of the book is called The Great Choice, but as I'm reading the section, the the part of the book, Growth, and you're not you're not doing this on purpose. You're not trying to say, hey, look who we were. 
because I've been around the block a few times and have a little bit of street smarts and understand leadership and what it takes to grow, I'm reading between the lines like, this is a smart business. These guys are get it. And just to prove it, there's a small paragraph, and I don't know if you remember this, Sean, there's a small paragraph where you basically gave away a piece of business, uh, a mortgage banking, or uh, it, it was a subprime lending that I don't think you were losing money on it, but you got rid of it well before 07, 08. So I thought, these guys are smart. These guys are not stupid. Uh, so I just want to point out that as you guys were growing, great team, good business model, sound business sense. I, I don't think I'm wrong. We called it, uh, the, the funny part was Edge Mortgage, and their, mo- and their motto was, when you're living on the edge, call Edge. But it just didn't make sense because we did get, we made money. But it's just like people can't. And this we got out in ni- March first of ninety nine. I remember the day I was so. And you're an accountant, yeah. You're an accountant, and I, you know, of course, I had to sell the stock because and because if you sell the assets, you're still you're going to be if it all comes back. And so I went to the manager. I said, "You can buy this thing for twenty five thousand. And they all spent. They were mortgage guys. They didn't make any. They made great six figures, but they didn't have. They had no cash. And I said, "It's you come up with a thousand bucks." And I'll take a note for 24 and we gave them a profitable business. And again, I said, but I don't care if you make another payment. And they didn't. And, you know, they lasted about a year. They didn't even crash because of the subprime, but that's how much. And that goes back to the Crosby Kempers and UMBs of there were risks we knew we shouldn't even take. And we got that risk when we bought a mortgage company in 94 and um, it was just starting. Because I knew I was going to interview you when I got to the word pushing pushing, you weren't doing anything illegal, but the word pushing. Could you give me an example or two back in your time? Okay. I, um, I'm very driven. And so I feel like in, that my, my thing as a leader is to lead, but every once in a while I have to push people. Now I don't let, I don't obviously wasn't physical, but I tried creative ways to push people. And, and that was, and it was always like, because most bankers were order takers. They never sold anything in their life. And we, we had some, we had a sales guy that was unbelievable, but we had to have four people follow him around to make sure he didn't commit bank fraud, that he didn't do something stupid. He couldn't make a loan. He couldn't approve an overdraft. And so we were always pushing the envelope. Like I said, with the real estate, we pushed the thing by hiring a guy. We paid him $400,000 and we gave him a title of senior vice president. No other banker, in, 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 unless they're a CEO, wouldn't even making 400. They might have making 100, 125, maybe a CEO making a quarter million. But we also, because of the accounting, which goes back to something you brought up a while ago, we cost accounted everything. His, his, his cost center was a $3 million pre-tax profit. Why wouldn't I pay him 400000 In your business, you do that every day. But in a bank, oh, my God, we can't pay him that. Let's give him one more title. Well, when you get the smart people, call me anything, pay me. And so we pushed... We pushed ourselves, we pushed our people, but we pushed the envelope. We did things that, you know, became commonplace before banking ended, in my opinion, about 12 or 13 years ago. And now it's really a utility, unless you're, you know, one of the big 10 or 20. There comes a point, I don't know if I could say that Legion had hit its pinnacle, but, and I'm going to paraphrase here, we were tired and tired of each other. We had reached a mountain. 
And I think at the time you had maybe had owned 70 plus LLCs uh, that were your, in your name. You're thinking maybe it's time to sell to a bigger player. And I think it came down to two large banking organizations. Uh, the people you said yes to was National City at $27 a share. And I, of course, I was interested. I think you became a 14 millionaire and then you had a golden parachute maybe of a couple million. So you made good money like a lot of founders do when they sell out, when they do an exit. But can you recall just the emotions you went through when the money was in the bank? Okay. Well, two, twofold. One, we were tired of it. 15 years is a long time. And it really wasn't the management as much as I managed. And this is what my man, the people that worked directly for me said, I don't know how you manage. Cause I had a board full of entrepreneurial people who pushed me like crazy. It, their theory was they would ask me constantly, why do we do this? And if I ever said it's because we did it, then we figured out a different way to do it. So that was a wonderful thing, but you had that. The other thing is, is that uh, I being one of the three largest shareholders, the other two are in their mid seventies now. And uh, one of them would have never sold. The other one, he wanted to move on. And it wasn't the biggest, it was nowhere near the biggest investment, but it was a big investment. So those things got us there. And then that, that, that when I tell it in the one chapter about the stock offering, we looked like amateurs. We went out and we never sold a share common to the public. We got 17 a quarter a share. By the way, those people made exactly $10 a share in seven and about less than eight months. But, which I couldn't believe, I, I was shocked. The point was, that was it. The other thing, now to your real question, unlike every bank I had to buy, I had to legally bribe the CEO. And that's what I don't like about public companies. In my case, I, I was a shareholder and I've always looked at business. I'm a pure economically driven person. It isn't what's in it for me. It's what's in it for me as an owner. So I knew that, you know, we were going to sell because it was the right time. And I, I, I you didn't touch this on the book, but I had that moment in July of 03, when the man who hired me at UMB, who was president of Crosby, came to me and wanted to merge a $5 billion bank with my two and a half, and it become a legion, and I become the CEO. But guess what it would have done? We would never have been worth 27 and a quarter. We would have diluted the value of our franchise. And I couldn't do that as a shareholder. And I came back when I met with the board, and they go, what'd you think? I go, my ego would love to do it. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want to be CEO? Of it? I would have been bigger than UMB. I would have had a market cap, you know, that was, and they never knew I was chasing, but I was in my own mind. But the real issue there, Mark, was I was worth as much outside of banking then as I was. So I never, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that money, money thing. Now it changed the fact, the mistake I made was, and, and I'll end on this, is I kept it like every other CEO had done. They were the seventh largest bank. They were double A rated credit. And I was getting $50,000 a month in dividends. And I'm thinking, you know, and they'll get bought and then I'll get it again. And there was, and, and I wouldn't change it because I wouldn't be who I am, but that was what did me in too. My, it's been a long time since I've been at a bank auditing a bank, but before we move on to your time in prison, I'm curious, there were no, there were no P&Ls or no financial statements shown in the book. I'm, I was just curious about Allegiant. I vaguely remember net income divided by equity I know that if we if a bank was around 11 or so percent, that's like gold. 
I know that if the ROE in banking is around 8% or lower, it's we've got some issues. I'm just curious, and I'm being financially nosy because I can't, no. I'm, I'm an analyst by, 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 by nature. Do you remember the ROE uh, during your Allegiant between days? Between the 12s and the 12s. Well, here's what Wall Street loved about us is every quarter we beat the, the quarter before. You know, the year, the same calendar quarter the year before, and we didn't use pooling of interest. So we had to do it the hard way. The other thing that we did was, is that when we, you know, when you went to buy a bank and you went to Wall Street and you said, we're going to cut 20% of the cost, that's all they gave you credit for in your model. We always cut 40 or more. That went back to putting the three quarters of a million dollars in my trunk. We, we never bought new furniture. We never built a new building. Every, we took two fat, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Hardee's and made them branches. You name it. We did stuff that people didn't do. We, we bought Southside. I tell this story a lot. We, it was like once we had a deal cut, when we went through their headquarters to meet their people, of course, it was kind and gracious and all that. But I was furniture shopping, and so were all my managers because their furniture was so nice. We're like, finally, we get a desk. My desk for four years was a desk that was rotted, and we put a piece of plywood over it. I think Warren Buffett would like that kind of a business. Well, here's what happened. You, you didn't you didn't mention we're now we're running short of time, and I want to get to the other stuff. But the second bank we bought was in the poor census tract, highest murder rate in the city of St. Louis. If you came to see me, you I never had a salesman ever show up, which was great. But when you came to see me, you want to do business, so you didn't care that you were looking at a piece of plywood. You wanted to do business. We've already talked about. The, uh, we've already talked about your crime, so let's move into prison time. And I have had, so I've, I've had on our show two people that have served time in prison. Uh, Jeff Smith, who happens to also live in St. Louis, I love his book. It's called Mister Smith uh, Goes to Prison. I loved, love, love that book, and he's been on our show. And of course, Aaron Beam is uh, served time in prison. And again, I cannot even relate to just spending one hour in a prison, let alone three plus years. So here is someone who now it seems like you live conservatively, you know, in your personal life, but going to prison, that had to be the lowest of lows, maybe the second lowest of lows because your lowest of lows was having the FBI show up at one of your kids' baseball games to say you're under arrest. And of course, I'm thinking they're idiots. Couldn't they have just waited the next day? Uh, I, that I don't get. But again, prison, I can't even fathom what that's, what that's like. What well, is the lowest of lows? I'll back up and start with the arrest. I was told, you know, well, I was told the week before Christmas I was going to get indicted. It took them until April 16th to come and get me. I was told to carry my passport. They were going to call and I had to self-surrender. And you know, four months later, I'm at a baseball game, and, and then he was a gentleman, and, and I actually ran into him on the street a few months ago. But he tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mr. Hayes, come with me. Well, it's pretty obvious. My son's on deck, and because uh, he was a second hitter, and we were the visiting team. And I turned the corner, and there's like six FBI agents. And so, uh, yeah, that was horrifically um, depressing and sad and, and heartbreaking. Then... The low point, though, came after I had been incarcerated for about four months. And, um, and and I equate, and I say this in the book, and I say it in life, and you're from Madison. Okay, I'm from Thayer. So we grew up in places, you know, I, I always said virtually, well, every truck had a gun in it. 
And a lot of guys carried real knives and we had a fight constantly. So I equate to high school because in prison, because I spent 15 months in county jail, which I'll come back. But I literally, you stood up every meal because there was a fight. And, and, and I was one of the older people, but I'm not, I'm not afraid. And, uh, and that gains you a lot of respect. But it was like being in high school again. But, I was, but that being said, I, had, you, you, I didn't go outside for 15 months. I didn't go to court that I wasn't cuffed or shackled. And when I got to prison, all the other white cops, virtually none of them had been cuffed or shackled. And they said they couldn't believe it. They were shocked. And, I, and, and that didn't bother me as much as I never got to go outside. So I would walk 10 miles a day down a 54-foot hallway. And in August of 18, August of 17, I was at the low of my low. And, and I've always been religious, but I just said, God, you've got to take this from me. And I turned the corner and turned around and we had a young guy and I won't go into the story who threw me an apple. He was diabetic and he got a sandwich, milk, orange juice, and apple. And, um, the system is broken. It's horrible. Um, because in a County jail, it's like a debtor's prison for a whole lot of the inmates. Cause you have County feds and state people. And the one I was in, we we're all intermixed in the same place. And so you, we had 18 year old kids. And the guy who was the godfather of the pot I was in um, was a, uh, he got convicted right after I left, triple murder uh, for hire. I mean, so you had some unique individuals living in a space that was uh, smaller than 36 men that were living in a space built for 24. And um, so, yeah, that was it. Prison, when I went to Marion, and I was fortunate, um, I was, uh, had less than 10 years I had no point. It's all a point system. Nothing's ever personal in the federal system. And so I got to go to a camp and, um, but it was a summer camp that you saw the brochure on, but the brochure was 20 years old, but they didn't, but you couldn't tell by the photo until you got there. Um, it was just a whole nother experience. Um, you, you mentioned uh, earlier that John Gotti was there. Yes. Also Manuel Noriega went there. And can, and, and, uh, and by the way, the, the prison you're in, this is Marion, Illinois, that's the prison that re- essentially replaced Alcatraz. Is that correct? That is correct. And so it's 60 some years old. And it, and, and, and I actually spent one night in the hole there and 15 nights in the prison prison. And uh, I've never been in another one, but you can tell it's 60 years old. It's a horrible place. We get to the ending. And again, this is the customer of the book who loves your book. It kind of ended abruptly. And I thought, man, Sean, I think we could have done some things with this. Now, I know a little bit about the book industry. I know that getting a book published is hard, especially if you self-publish. Even if you don't self-publish, uh, it can be tricky. But I wish we could have talked, you could have talked a little bit more about the role of ethics in the business workplace. I'm, again, I'm, I'm a cynic, I'm very cynical. The The country boy in me from Missouri says, I don't believe it until I can see it and I can prove it and touch it. I'm not a big believer in ethics training. I know you have a heart for that. What do we, and I'm not, I'm not going to do a good job at asking my question. You're going to help me phrase my question better. How can we do better at ethics training in the workplace to help prevent these gray decisions. Uh, There is fraud that's very planned out, thought out. I'm not talking about that. 
that would be the crazy eddies of the world, which we had a show about. That was that was planned. That was on purpose. Enron. Enron. Great point. But but I would even say there, everything started out in the gray. And it's like, oh, let's keep pushing the envelope until it was, okay, we are doing this on purpose. Now, again, that that's opinion. But the question is, how do we teach ethics in a way that's interesting, that, oh, this can be very, very helpful. Have you thought through that? And Phil, and by the way, feel well, free and, to disagree and push back on me. Oh, well, I, I, the way I'm going to push is, is that one, because it, it's a good question. One, I'm, I'm not an academic. And I, 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 I'm, I was, you know, probably a marginal student at best. But what I believe is, if you look at the other side, not the ethics side of it, is we learn from other people's experiences. And the textbook case <clears throat> doesn't have those experiences. And why I thought I was uniquely able to communicate this is that I had all this success not breaking the law. And then I broke the law and I had it. And so part of it is the real consequences. And in my case, it's not just 37 months in prison. It's the cost to my children and my family. It's those. So when you can look somebody in the eye and say, you know, I started here and you, and you, you know, the introduction, I use the plane example of, and the best example is not my example. It's if you leave LA going to DC and you're off one degree, you end up in New York. It, it isn't. And, and, and Bill McClellan asked me this question. No, I, I believe whatever that percentage is, those people get up to do something totally criminal. Most people you get there over time. And in the book, I've referenced that test. I took at UMB when I hadn't stolen anything. But I, somebody asked me this question the other day, not in a, in a professional form like this, but in a social form. And I said, what is Cyber Monday but stealing from your employer? Because all these people shop online and they're being paid. And they, I, I'll be honest with you, Mark. It took that person. We're talking a college-educated, intelligent person. It took them several minutes to even agree with me. And I said, you didn't do it at lunch. You didn't do it at a break. You shopped all day long. You stole several hours at a six-figure fear, you know, now I'm not saying, no, you know, of course, you know how you just that well, but I worked at three extra hours at night and I'm not on hourly and I'm not this, but it's those things and you slowly get there. And the other, so, so to me, it is, it is a thing over time. And I think when you're a student, you read that stuff, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not doing it. Well, when somebody sits there and says, no, you're not, but look at the progression and then look how you can have success when you don't. But then when you do look at the consequences, because sometimes, you know, it's that hot stove thing. Sometimes we have to touch that burner, not the burner. We have to touch that countertop to, to believe it. The, the, the in key ingredient to me in it, it is, so, is, is that when you look at it and you say, okay, here's somebody who did it without it. You get there over time. How do you not get there? And this is what I lost. And this is the key lesson, because it's a book about choices at the end of the day. The key lesson was for 15 years, I had people that helped me accountable. Not really in a criminal way, but an accountable because it was the same thing. That was one thing. I lost that. The second thing is, as managers now, you and you should be this anyway. You should know more than your people about your people than what's going on in the office, because my the, the world I was in, you know, I was directly correlated with the real estate collapse because banks and real estates died together. And that was where 90% and forget that killed the stock market. So I was financially dead, but I didn't have anybody around me who could figure that out. If you had that core group, they would have, they would have known. 
but you know that you know it's those things of knowing your people that that's challenging the manager say don't just know sean is okay he does a good job what goes on in sean's life because i explained this to somebody this weekend i said we only lost money on a loan when these things happened they got a divorce they had a drug issue an alcohol issue or a gambling issue those things caused us to lose money now People had business problems every day, but once you had those moral issues, then we had credit issues and you can't, you can't register morals. You can't train morals, but you can train thinking. And that's what the lesson is. Now we're on, now we're talking, Sean, this show is not about me. It's about the people we talk to, but if you ever do a version 2.0 and include an epilogue, just three quick bullet points. And, and again, feel free to disagree. You brought up RDAP, RDAP, and I believe RDAP, let me go to my notes, stands for Residential Drug Abuse Program. That's what you went through uh, on the tail end of serving time uh, there at Marion, where you went to the prison camp. You went through the RDAP program. You mentioned that uh, it was transformative. You mentioned that was a great program, but it's like, man, I wish I'd learn more. I even did a search this weekend on RDAP. And there's not much there. I I found a couple of blog posts that talk about the core values, but I want to see some more meat. So I'm thinking, could RDAP be good? Could we lift some of their teaching and plug it into business ethics? Uh, So again, that's just thought number one. Thought number two is there are going to be people, I'm, I'm trying to find a common denominator where no one is offended. Uh, good luck in this world we live in in 2023. Uh, don't think we had this conversation in 1980 or 85 or even 1990, but let's say you, you, we have a world that believes in many gods, or there may be a world where you believe in a dozen god gods, or there may be a world where you believe in one god, or there may be a world where you believe in no god or gods. Well, let's just take all those people together. I think they could all agree there are three crimes that can be committed. Crimes of the state, crimes of one another. Now, I'm not talking crimes of one another that are also crimes of the state. It'd be like crimes of like broken trust, violating a trust. And then the third crime is crimes of the heart. And so you mentioned morality. And that's, see, that's my big hang-up on ethics training. Uh, we talk about the crimes of the state. Don't always talk much about crimes of, of, of others and then crimes of the heart. I wish more ethics training addressed those other two crimes. And then my last uh, point is we both like the St. Louis Cardinals. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the word accountability, ability, I think twice in this conversation. Just because you go to Vistage doesn't mean you have an accountability group just because you go to any other CEO group doesn't mean you have accountability. But if every leader manager, even individuals had an accountability group, the reason I bring up the St. Louis Cardinals, Mike Matheny wrote a book, former Cardinals manager had success there. He has a book called the Matheny manifesto. And I would love to meet him and see, ask him, do you still have these 16, 17 people that you are accountable to on a one-on-one basis. Cause I, that I have not forgot that part of the book. If every leader had accountability people, Jeffrey Skilling, had he had that, 
Now, he may have had the desire to commit fraud, but I still believe that you can eventually act your way into a good feeling. So those are just three ideas for a future epilogue. I Sorry if I droned on and if you disagree with anything. No, I love it. Thank you. I, I actually, substantial if not complete agreement. I, as one of my directors would say, we're in passionate agreement because that's the, the, you hit the nails on the head. The only thing I do want to come back to RDAP is I believe it should be taught in our public school system. I think that's great. That is a young enough age, but you know, I'm, I'm not the government. And, and again, I would love to know where I can learn more about their literature. I want to know where are they coming from? I would love to know some of the big pillars that they teach. And it's just hard to find that uh, online. One, one thing they teach us is rational thinking, but the one, they have five questions that you ask yourself and this is in the, before you make a decision, does it fit three of the five, but preferably four of the five? Usually what happens is every decision will pass two, but the ones that are on the line, there's no way they'll pass four or three or four. And so those five rules, the other thing is, and this is one thing, I'm a very quick thinker and you are too. And they cause me, I can still be as quick a thinker, but I think about my thinking now. And that's a big term. What are your favorite books? Do, do you have do, do you have books that you just absolutely love? Uh, what what are some of your favorites? And by the way, it's okay if you say I, we've I've had some people say, Mark, I even though I'm an author, I don't read a lot. Maybe podcast or, but but are, are you a reader? I'm I'm curious. I'm a I'm a, I've been a, an avid. Once I got out of college, I consumed books, and I still do. I love books, and I and I'm tactile. You know, um, and uh, the point is, there's two books that I think every person in business should read. And the first one, probably first everyone has, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. That to me was, you know, there's there's dozens of sub genres in there that that people have written great books on. But that was so all encompassing, especially when you understand the history of him. The second one is totally off a of left center. It's called Boundaries about 30 years old, written in about 92 by two psychologists. And it is so good in your personal life, but also in your business life, because what, as humans, virtually all of us have issues with boundaries. And it is so, it's a, it's almost a tutorial. It's a book, but there, but it has, you know, it has examples and it's such that it's a tutorial on setting and understanding and using and accepting boundaries. And to me, that's just a huge thing, especially in today's society where uh, there's just too much information. There's too much, you know, there's just all these things that I think are too much and you really need boundaries. Somebody asked me this question at church, a pure stranger. We were just, they they asked a question Sunday and I said, boundaries. I saw the guy write it down. I said, you're really going to enjoy it. So those are my two. Sean, this has been Excellent. And I cannot thank you. I thank you for your humility. And I, and I thank you for being the person who says, Hey, what I did is, is wrong. You're not, you're, you're not cowering. You, you are, you're being transparent and I appreciate that. And I, again, I enjoyed the book. It's, it's, it's an excellent book. And, and I hope especially people in leadership positions take this to heart and that they read between the lines lines and behind the lines about 
these gray areas that they are having to make decisions about every single day. Again, very well done. Well, thank you. And I'm a fan and I really appreciate your time. And I'm out there anytime for you or any people in your audience. Thank you, Mark. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. That is Sean Hayes, author of The Great Choice, and he is going to be sending me materials on RDAP, which we talked about, and I can't wait to go through that information, and I'll share what I can in a future blog post. Also, a quick shout out to Sarah at booklaunchers.com who said, Mark, I think this is your kind of story, and yep, she got it right. Thanks, Sarah. We need to call this a wrap. Thank you for listening. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. 